Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Welcome back to our second student episode this summer on Latinx Visions. As we mentioned last week, we're releasing content created by our Baruch College students over the past year. This week, the work comes from LTS 1003, Latin America, an Institutional and Cultural Survey, LTS 3085, Latinx Film and Media, LTS 3100, Latinx Communities in the U.S., and IDC 3001, People of New York. For these classes, we each offer students the option of completing a podcast episode for their final project. As we mentioned last week, other options might include a paper, a video, or a social media-based project, depending on the course. Since students are assigned to listen to podcasts throughout the semester, they grow accustomed to what they sound like, and this helps them plan out how they want to present their own research in this medium. For some of these students, creating a podcast was something they had never done before, and we're proud of them for stepping outside of their comfort zones and trying something new. At the end of the semester, we asked students who submitted their podcast episodes for permission to share their research on this platform. A handful of students granted us that permission. Their work is presented as they created it with very minimal editing for sound levels and similar such issues. We have not edited them for content. In this episode, we feature projects by LTS 1003 student Roxana Escamilla, LTS 3100 student Diego Gonzalez, LTS 3085 students Matthew Keme and Emma Rose, and IDC 3001 students Tasia Muscan and Allison Triana. Roxana's research focuses on Latinx identities, in particular that feeling of living in between cultures and not feeling as though you truly belong as an American or as a Latino. She uses the character of Chris from the Netflix series Hentified to expand on this concept. Diego Gonzalez's work considers the changes that have taken place over the last several decades to the New York neighborhoods of the Lower East Side and Washington Heights due to gentrification. He uses the Obelisk of Loisaida by Marcos Gonzalez and the Ladder Up by Karina del Valle Skorsky as a jumping off point for his discussion. This will be followed by Matthew and Emma's project, which looks at the documentary Clinica de Migrantes by Maxim Pozdorovkin and the book chapter Ground Zero from Carla Cornejo Villavicencio's book The Undocumented Americans to discuss the connection between healthcare and labor issues faced by undocumented Latin Americans on the East Coast of the United States. The final segment by Tasia and Allison also addresses Cornejo Villavicencio's chapter Ground Zero. They explore the struggles of exploitation faced by undocumented migrants during 9-11 in their project. Overall, these projects focus on themes of identity, gentrification, immigration, and exploitation. Let's give them a listen.
Do you ever wonder your your identity when it comes to where do you belong in terms of your ethnicity? The show Hintified, which is a Netflix show, uh, there is a character who goes by the name Chris, who throughout the show struggles with his Latinx identity because people don't seem to appreciate him, um, especially his family. Not only do you see this in the show, but this is a topic that I feel isn't talked about within the Latin community. Uh, Chris struggles to find his identity within the Latinx community. Um, You kind of see him like pushed away from his family and seen as if he's not important to the family because he did not grow up like the rest of his families did. Uh, His family, like his cousins, his grandfather, they all live in Boyle Heights. Meanwhile, he... Although he was born in Boyle Heights, he, as a young child, he, uh, his parents moved to Idaho where he grew up. And um, people within the Latin community, they relate to this because then it's like, where do I balance the two cultures? Uh, am I too American for uh, my Latino family or am I too Latino for my American friends or even relatives. Um, a little bit about the show is that Hintified takes place in Boyle Heights, Los Angeles, and it follows a Mexican-American family as they're struggling to keep their family business, uh, which is Mama Fina's, and they try to keep it alive because right now it's not doing so great because the neighborhood, Boyle Heights, it's getting gentrified. And things are changing slowly and slowly. Um, This family goes through struggles, but I mostly want to talk about Chris's struggles as he is an important character to the show because of his, I guess you would say, identity crisis. Um, A few things that like I can mention about uh, Chris not being wanted or not being wanted, but, you know, put on put on side or like just not seen as important. And um, there's a scene in season one, episode three, that Chris is trying to help his grandfather's business by uh, mentioning to him about some marketing techniques that they can that they can use to like um, so that the business can survive. Um, he mentions having like a social media account for the restaurant. He also talks about a loyalty program. Uh, which would kind of bring in customers and also even try a new taco of the week. Um, when he mentions this, his grandfather's like, yeah, 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 do do whatever you want. Um, the grandfather is seen as if he doesn't really care for Chris's intentions when it comes to the family business, which um, Chris feels like he isn't really there, like he um, is put on the side. Um, another thing is that Chris isn't being appreciated when he is trying to make a, a new taco recipe. Um, there's the scene in also the same episode where Chris mentioned about making a chicken tikara masala taco. Um, when he mentions that his other cousin, Eric, who he doesn't really get along with, Chris doesn't like Eric and Eric doesn't like Chris. Um, Eric mentions, can someone tell this widow you can't throw trash on a tortilla and call it a taco? 
I'm here. Chris calls. I mean, sorry. Eric calls Chris widow, which is white, which is you're white as in like American. You're not Mexican. And he calls whatever Chris wants to make trash, which is like he doesn't really appreciate Chris trying to invent a new taco and add and basically making it more American than Mexican. Um, another scene in that same episode is that uh, Chris works as a, I guess, assistant chef at a restaurant. While, and his co-workers, they kind of bully him and tell him, like, oh, you're not Mexican enough. You're not Mexican at all. So Chris gets tired of that one day and was like, just test me then. If you don't think I'm Mexican enough, just test me. So his co-workers test him and they make him do all these things such as like uh, dance to Mexican music, uh, do soccer tricks. Um, they also blindfold him and they make him taste tequila and he has to figure out what kind of tequila is it. They also blindfold him and they... They give him some candy to taste, and he has to know what type of candy it is. They also tell him um, what are five Mexican states. They also tell him to name um, luchadores, which is like uh, people who wrestle, but um, they wear masks so that their real identity isn't known. Things like that he has to know, and it's like a Mexican thing. But at the end, they give him a score, basically a pass and a fail. And if he passes, he's Mexican. And if he fails, he's not Mexican. So they tell him that he, he, they basically tell him, you failed, you're not Mexican. And then they, um, they laugh at that because then, um, Chris is just in, in their eyes, Chris is not Mexican because he did not pass the test. Um, they also kind of bully him after. And and in Spanish, it's, Quiere llorar, quiere llorar, meaning he wants to cry, he wants to cry, which is like, which makes obviously Chris feel bad. And if you say it to anyone, they're going to feel bad about themselves. Um, that's right now, that's like what's what I see that Chris isn't appreciated. He uh, struggles with finding his identity because of his co-workers or especially his family. Um, another thing is that not only does the show talk about identity, but in real life, also, uh, people struggle to find themselves. There's an article that I read that was written by Ramiro Valdez, and he says, Wendy confesses that she has a bit of emotions of guilt for liking some aspects of American culture, um, like hip hop, more than Mexican, more than Mexican American culture. Um, she confessed she would in the past much rather listen to hip hop than banda or norteño, which is a type of Mexican music. Um, it also says now as she has grown older, she feels more inclined to go towards her Mexican culture. Um, Wendy mentions guilt and the guilt that she is talking about is that, um, in the situation, in this situation is that she does not identify with Mexican music. Rather, she preferred to listen to hip-hop. Uh, the guilt comes from basically her denying her Mexican culture. Um, there is no balance between her American culture and her Mexican culture. It's like she has to decide which one she is. Um, something about 
the show that I also want to mention is that Chris, since Chris um, was raised in Idaho, obviously he's going to have more money than his family that grew up in Boyle Heights. And Chris um, does not want to take his father's money because he does not want to be seen as rich in his eyes, in the in his family's eyes that live in Boyle Heights. Um Chris does not want to be someone who has family when he is living in a neighborhood that is not rich at all. He wants to be like his cousins. He wants to live like his cousins. And one of the things that um, Eric, especially his cousin Eric, um, he thinks like, why are you here if you have all this money? Like, leave, like, go somewhere else. We don't need you here in Boyle Heights. Like, that's kind of the rejection that Chris feels. Um Something else I want to mention is that in another article by Patricia Sanchez Connolly, she meant she interviews Ashley, which she is Latina, and she mentions how this is this is directly from her from Ashley, and she says, "I had a very difficult time defending myself because I was living a double life between boarding school, at boarding school, and La Esperanza, which is a neighborhood in in." Uh, Los Angeles. I'm Latina and yes, I like mango, but I play ice hockey and I listen to music that my friends never heard of. And you start to understand parts of yourself, part of your environment and being yourself. You learn to compromise and not give up on who you are. Um, I feel like Ashley makes a really great point of living a double life because she does go to a boarding school, which is predominantly white. And she has to make friends somehow. And that somehow is balancing her identity. She also, she mentions that she listens to music that her friends don't or most likely never even heard of. So that's, that's Ashley's way of being Latina rather than being American and playing ice hockey as ice hockey. It is an American sport. And she mentions, yes, I like mango which there she is accepting her Dominican culture, um, which I like because it's like you you split both cultures in half. You have, you she balances her Dominican culture and then she balances her American culture. Um, yeah, that is something really important. Um, also, feeling out of place is another reason why people in the Latinx uh, Latinx community question their identity. Um, same, same article from Patricia Sanchez Connolly. She mentioned, she mentions similar to other studies, my participants' perception of prejudice and discrimination on campus is the classroom affected their sense of belonging and their overall social experience. Um, having a sense of not belonging messes with messes up uh people people's mindset because it makes them seem like they're not worthy enough to interact with others makes them feel out of place and that out of place makes them believe as if they're not accepted in that american um in the uh, in the american identity um something else that i want to mention that relates to what i just said um from the show is that 
Chris has to decide if he wants to go to Paris and study culinary um, to become a chef, or does he want to stay in Boyle Heights to help his grandfather? Um, this all comes back to, is he abandoning his family to focus on himself? Is he abandoning um, his Mexican culture and just wants to focus on himself and basically um, his American dream? Um, something else I want to mention from an article that Melissa Moreno wrote is that citizen surveillance entails negotiating one's national uh, legal citizenship during moments in public when one is not identified as a normalized citizen of a nation or is challenged as not being a legitimate citizen that belongs in society. Um, this questions one's, one's um, identity because a person can be a citizen of a different country, but the thing is that the person might not identify themselves with that country because they had um, to most likely leave that country at a young age and maybe don't remember their life in that country. But in the country where where they live now is telling them that they're not from that country. So the question is, where do they belong? In a country that they don't remember or in a country that they call home, but society tells them they don't belong there. Um, just to recap everything, um, Chris questions his identity within the Latinx community because he feels as if he's not important to his family. This leads to the question of where is the balance between being too, too Latino or being too American? Overall, people question their Latinx identity because they aren't appreciated. Um, it makes them feel like they are lost. And it's okay to feel that way because sooner or later, Later, you will find something good about who you are and who you want to be. Um, struggling with your own identity doesn't only happen within the Latinx community. It can happen to anyone, whether you come from a biracial family, you are adopted, and there is, some, there is always someone out there in the world that struggles with their identity. Hi everyone, for my podcast today, I will be focusing on two pieces that we have left in class, The Obelisk of La Saida by Marcos Gonzalez, which focuses on the Lower East Side neighborhood and how it has changed, and Karina del Valle Skorsky, The Ladder Up, focusing on the neighborhood of Washington Heights and the selling of her grandmother's apartment because of her health issues and them actually moving her out of the apartment. Now, both articles speak about how the neighborhoods once were back in the 1970s, 1980s, and how it currently is with all the changes being brought, one of the main reasons being gentrification. Now, something that both of the articles do is they focus on the violence that, had, that was present in the neighborhood once before. We see this through Gonzalez when he focuses on the work that Miguel Piñero a poet does on describing how the neighborhood was and him not being able to identify with what the poet is describing because his neighborhood has changed so much and there's no longer that violence pres that violence presence that once once there back in the nineteen seventies and eighties. And Karina del Valle also speaking about how people were leaving Washington Heights and 
Dominicans, and not only Dominicans, but other people that were drug dealers moving into the neighborhood to serve to people who were living in the suburbs and were passing by the neighborhood to sell them the drugs or other things that they needed, which caused a lot of violence again in both of these neighborhoods with drugs, guns, and other um, factors being always constantly present in the neighborhood. Now, when speaking about the neighborhood, the neighbor these neighborhoods are well diverse. There are different people who have moved into this neighborhood, such as blacks migrating from the south, as also Latinx community, especially Puerto Ricans, and them being able to move to the to the United States now as citizens. And it, the there's also a strong presence of Asian communities, specifically in the Lower East Side, and a lot of people who back in the 1970s, 1980s were able to celebrate the work and the diversity found within their neighborhoods, which created a sense of community that now, if you were to look into how it is now, there's not that strong presence that was once there before. Um, now, with that being said, there's not only through people having to move away from their neighborhood because of gentrification, but also looking into the people who were left there, especially looking into the Lower East Side. Through Gonzalez's work, we see that there's still people who are part of the neighborhood who used to be there back when the, back in the 1970s and the 1980s. But they no longer have that strong relationship with the area as they used to have once before because they have been pushed down to the projects or to other apartments that no longer are with the people who are part of their community and even with people back going back to um, Karina's work we see that she mentions how now there's a lot of people white people who leave the train stations with her and get off in the same stop because they also are part of the neighborhood they live in the neighborhood which causes a lot of um, shifts in the demographics of the people who are now present in the neighborhood. And to continue, um, we see that it's through Gonzalez being able to speak to this old lady who was once part of the neighborhood and still is there, that he really gets a sense of how it used to be back in the 1970s and 1980s. And it's not only through her, but also with Looking at Miguel Pinero's work and also Martin Wong, his partner's work and his paintings, is that he actually is able to see and hear the stories of how Los Aida was once were. And that being said, it is through the flag that he sees in this, this lady's apartment outside of the window that it kind of gives him a sense of home since he's able to see that there's also somebody else in the neighborhood that is part of the community that he's from, which is from Puerto Rico. And now going back to Karina's work, her grandmother was also Puerto Rican. And when she mentioned or when she asked her about her wanting to move back and wanting to stay home, 
She doesn't refer to Washington Heights as her home, but instead she wants to go back to her island, to like Puerto Rico, which that's where she finds that it was most of her home. And even though she was able to make a home in Washington Heights specifically and be able to live in the area, she still does not relate that as a place in which she will call home. But instead, um, the diaspora not being her home and being kind of like a place in which she was able to prosper and be able to create a, a, another sense of hope for her and herself and her family. And now to conclude, minority communities are important in cities for people who are part of these communities to be able to feel a sense of belonging, especially since it is such a hard, different um transition having to move from another country into a big city in which there's a lot of diversity and there's a lot of different people which could really be hard for people to be able to feel that they belong so it was was through um losaida losaida and also through washington heights the minority communities like dominicans puerto ricans black people asian people that they have been able to have to create a safe space and environment in which they feel comfortable enough to be able to represent where they're coming from. Since a lot of people don't really usually do that because of the fear of being discriminated or not a lot of people being able to relate to the works or the traditions that they might have in their cultures. Now, even though it was not the, sa the safest place and a lot of people were to consider this space as dangerous. Um, we see that today they, there's a bigger danger happening, which is gentrification coming into these neighborhoods and removing um, communities that were once present in um, New York City and just bringing in wealthy um, middle-class white people to occupy this space. And it's only through stories that are told and people who communicate these stories that people are, get to know the history about what the neighborhood once used to look like and what, what, um, it was once before. Now, I think if the communities like in Washington Heights looks into what happened in Losaida and sees really that like gentrification could really have a huge impact on Washington Heights. I think it will be a good idea for the community to come together and to tell their stories and how it is for them living in the neighborhood. Because ultimately, I think in a couple of 10 or 20 years, if nothing is done, Washington Heights is no longer gonna be that predominant, predominant Dominican community. And it will just be considered as the little Dominican Republic in Google. But that will be it. There will not be um, Dominicans present in the neighborhood as also other Latinx people because there's no longer that community that made them feel comfortable enough for them to be able to prosper in the diaspora because they're no longer surrounded by them. But overall, I think when the community comes together and looks beyond the differences that they might have with one another, they are able to come together and be able to create a good, strong community that could overcome any other obstacles that might come, um, might come and impact them 
in a negative way and wanting to end them, which in reality, I think if we do have a strong sense of community, there would not be anything that could come um, come and and become an obstacle for us. And that is all. I hope you guys enjoyed um, these thoughts that were brought up and this point. And thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Be Kind Rewind. Today, we're going to look at the documentary Clinica de Migrants by Maxim Pozdorovkin and the essay Ground Zero by Carla Conejo Villa Vicencio. Today, we're going to be discussing the connection between healthcare and the labor issues experienced by undocumented Latin Americans in the U.S. East Coast region. I'm here with my co-host, Emma Rose Rebuano. Hey, everybody. And I'm excited for you to join us today. I think you're going to learn a lot about these two things that you have brought to your attention. So Matt, you mentioned that we were going to talk about a documentary. Can you tell me a little bit of what that's about? Yeah, so Clinica de Migrants is about a clinic that actually works for free. So the clinic's name is Puentes de Salud, which translate in English means health bridges. And it's a group of doctors, student doctors mostly, who work pro bono to help the Latin community. Because as of right now, for undocumented workers, it is not easy for them or they cannot actually, for most times, cannot obtain healthcare insurance and usually do not go to emergency rooms or see doctors on the regular. So are you saying that a lot of undocumented workers are not even thought about in the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, that's actually precisely what I'm saying is that they're such a population that is actually mostly ignored that nobody really wants to help them. So is it common for this community to have to go to work even if they're sick? Yeah, unfortunately due to a lot of undocumented Latin Americans, they are often living under the poverty line. As we see in the documentary, a lot of them cannot afford health insurance. So what ends up happening is with the low pay that they get and the low and the hours that they work, the excessive amount of hours that they work, they're often overworked and have a lot of these health issues. And due to that, they're kind of, with the low pay, they can't really afford going to the doctor. So they often have to skip buying medicine to provide for their family. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just the adult population either. I mean, children too, right? A lot of pediatricians don't want to see children in their office if they don't have insurance. Yeah, that's another thing about the the problem with the system that, that allows this group, this community to go unnoticed. So you had mentioned earlier that a lot of the doctors work pro bono. Where is this clinic getting the money to fund itself? That's actually a good question. Well, see, what happens is they usually run on donations, which is a good thing. But since a lot of them are pro bono, they often have to do a fundraiser. So there's this one scene in the documentary that I think it's critical and it's a kind of a transparent view of how 
people of higher or people of different wealth status kind of view people who are lower to them and how they kind of view immigrant workers as not even people. There's a scene in the documentary that shows Steve Larson, the head doctor, meeting with local restaurant owners to ask for donation. And since a lot of his patients work for them and the majority of them feel that it's too much money to give up, which solidifies the idea that a lot of people in power treat undocumented workers very poorly and almost inhumane. That's really interesting. So I know that Puentes de Salud is in Texas, um, and I know the South can be very conservative, but what about the East Coast? Because the East Coast seems to be more liberal, so do these things still happen there? So actually, in this essay, in the book Undocumented American by Carla Canejo, we actually focus on a couple of stories written by or told from this perspective of people who've been affected by the clean of being the cleanup crew for 9-11 and what a lot of these stories happen to kind of evolve around is the idea of that during the attack of 9-11 and ground zero when the twin towers fell obviously besides the first responders being firefighters and policemen the cleanup crew which i didn't know until now was a lot of undocumented americans mostly latin americans from either mexico colombia and uh, either Central or in South America. So what would happen is during the cleanup, there would be working in these really hazardous conditions filled with toxic waste, such as jet fuel, debris, dust, and it would have dire health consequences. And so a lot of these people develop these really hazardous health conditions that underlying conditions that kind of caused their lives to be in such shambles afterwards. So uh, a lot of these undocumented workers uh, developed a lot of respiratory illnesses, which caused them to have trouble breathing and to be sick and really kind of mess up their whole life. And the problem is that a lot of the new care acts and the ground level relief funds and the people who've been affected who would actually benefit from these funds, the problem is the cutoff that they were supposed to start like having symptoms so that they could apply for the relief fund actually cut it off so soon. So I cut off, I think at 2003, which it didn't allow them to reapply or anything. So a lot of these people didn't really start showing symptoms until later on in their life, but due to working at the hazardous conditions and a lot of them couldn't apply for it. So it's kind of like, I know that they hammered it at home in the documentary that we were seeing earlier that, the Latin community, especially undocumented workers, are often seen as not human and are kind of thrown under the bus when it comes down to healthcare. And it's just interesting to see that these people are kind of living with these health conditions and still going to work. I know in the documentary, we see that woman who who's having a really like severe back pain and she starts crying because she's like her sons are so proud of her that she keeps going to work and in this book we kind of see that it's a very latin thing to kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and kind of like ignore the pain and just keep working because you got to provide for your family and i think that that's what's been this idea of um kind of just ignoring the pain and just kind of waiting for the inevitable and I think that with hopefully with more, you know, younger people stepping up, we can see a hopefully a change in this system and we can uh, we can be um, a community of people that isn't ignored. 
And my co-host, Emma, is a student who studies economics, and she was telling me something very interesting about how undocumented workers affect the economy. Well, thanks for that, Matt. Yeah, so actually in one of my classes, Intermediate Macroeconomics, we were learning about how population growth can increase output, and we were learning about the loanable funds model. And in this model, it shows actually that immigrants are more entrepreneurial than domestic citizens, and 55% of the U.S.'s $1 billion firms are founded by immigrants. Um, and so when we plug in a one-time increase in immigration, we actually find that technological advancement increases, and because of that innovation, the real rental price and the real wage increases, and so everybody is better off. Now, you would think with this information things would be going a lot differently in the U.S. government. However, fiscal policymakers, politicians, Congress, they like to ignore this because they know that they'll get more of a vote if they totally ignore this policy and keep going on this rant that, you know, immigrants are taking Americans' jobs and things like that. We're actually, if we look at the economic data in these growth models, we'd see the complete opposite and that immigration is actually so wonderful. And I think in the documentary, they kind of talk on that where he says that, you know, with all of these jobs at the restaurants, with um, billionaires building their mansions in Texas, that they want more nannies, they want more cheap landscaping, and they're actually opening the doors for immigrant workers to come in. Um, And I think that this is really an interesting connection to see how policymakers do it on purpose, even though the actual evidence is showing us that increasing immigration actually increases real GDP per person in the U.S. and increases income and output. Would you mind just explaining to me what GDP is? Yeah, of course I can. So real GDP is the real gross domestic product. And so that basically just shows us the value of every good and service produced in the economy in a given year. And so the real GDP per person is just the real GDP of the current economy divided by how many people there are in the U.S., What I thought was interesting when reading Ground Zero by Carla was what I was actually ill-educated on was that besides the first responders, police and firemen, that undocumented workers were actually some of the people and probably the majority of the people who cleaned up the September 11th attacks. And I think that it's a shame that we don't celebrate them more every year when we do Um, our September 11th memorials. I think that that should be more included. And I think that going forward, I think I'd like to find either way to educate people on that. And, you know, I I hope and I pray that there are actually more clinics like Salud, um, Puentes de Salud. And, you know, I think, you know, learning about these two things and how they how they share a very similar connection rather than difference I think that more people should be more aware of the history of the United States. Any final thoughts, Emma? Yeah, the last thing I want to say is that going off of what you had mentioned about being ill-educated, I really did not know a lot of these things were happening in the U.S. And when I did think about them, I thought they were much more centralized, like one specific location. But what I learned today is that This is happening everywhere in the U.S., East Coast, in Texas. I'm sure if we looked at the West Coast and the Midwest, we'd see the same thing. And I think a lot of people don't realize how widespread of an issue this is in the U.S., and we should definitely be bringing more representation and more education to this topic. 
I extremely agree, and I just want to say thank you again for joining the podcast for this episode. This has been episode one of Be Kind Rewind, and we'll hope to see you guys soon. The first responders were firemen and EMT workers. The second responders were undocumented immigrants. Carla Cornejo Villavicencio writes this in her essay, The Undocumented Americans, which speaks on the struggles and exploitations of undocumented immigrants during 9-11. Good afternoon, this is Tazia. And I'm Ali. And today we'll be exploring New York City through the eyes of Villavicencio from the chapter Ground Zero, where she provides both personal and collective reactions to the city during 9-11 and its after effects. Carla Cornejo Villavicencio is the daughter of undocumented parents. Her views on New York City are molded not only by the horrifying experiences of her community, but also by her father's, who was directly affected by laws that were put into place to ostracize foreigners following 9-11. With this terrorist catastrophe leaving more than 2,000 people dead and thousands more injured, the fear for foreigners increased. As Villavicencio writes, quote, because the antithesis of an American is an immigrant, and because we could not be victims in the public eye, we became suspects, end quote. This led to programs like severe communities to be set in place. This affected Villa Vicencio directly, as her father lost his job as a taxi driver because the program restricted driver's licenses of those with no papers. As a child, this imprinted on her vision of the city as she witnessed her father, who was a pillar of strength in her life, crushed by this injustice. This personal hit to her family is the start of her exploration of the city through the eyes of undocumented immigrants. After her father lost his job, he started working as a delivery man, where he learned about the unfair treatment of undocumented cleanup workers who either passed away or were harmed. Villa Vicencio, having an interest in journalism, wanted to document the struggles of her community through interviewing her father's co-workers, which eventually led her to connect with larger support groups, which we will explore soon. Molded by these stories and her own experiences, Carla Cornejo Villavicencio views the city of New York as one that manipulated, used, and then abandoned her Latinx community after all the great sacrifices that they made for them. Let's talk a little more in depth about how Villavicencio connects the tragedy of 9-11 to the hypocrisy of the city's initial desperation for workers versus the unfair treatment of illegal immigrants who were there on the scene. In a support group run by social worker Lucero Gomez for undocumented ground zero immigrant workers, he spoke about how these immigrants started receiving phone calls, quote, from a very underground kind of network of people who were undocumented and needed work, end quote. Immigrants like Milton Vallejo, a member of Lucero's support group, were desperate for work and willing to help in whatever ways they could. Milton felt it was his quote-unquote duty to help with the cleanup. Yet, in a later conversation with Paloma, another member of the group, she told Villavicencio, quote, if they had put up a sign at the site listing what we would come to face, we wouldn't have gone in, end quote. Essentially, the dangers of this work were kept hidden from the immigrants to prevent a decline in helpers. Milton's job, for example, was to clean basements with only plastic grocery bags to protect his feet from the deep, dirty water. He wasn't even provided goggles, which would have helped with avoiding the dust. Even though there was a strong need for workers, undocumented immigrants were still treated unfairly, as seen through this lack of appropriate equipment for their tasks. These immigrant workers trusted their contractors and those in the chain of command to look out for them, 
but that trust was violated and the workers were treated almost as if they were disposable with little to no support and blatant disregard for their health and safety. Pila Vicencio did not stop at mentioning 9-11's immediate damage to just the location. It is also the reason for the decline in health for those who were exposed to the extremely dangerous conditions of the cleanup project. Reflecting back on the perspective of undocumented workers in the city, the entire city had, in a sense, abandoned these workers after initially accepting their service with open arms. Lucero's group is full of people who were left with gastritis, arthritis, PTSD, depression, and many other disorders. Paloma herself has developed breast cancer due to prolonged exposure to the toxins during her cleanup work, and she has yet to receive a compensation check from the government. This really speaks to the unreliability of New York City support for undocumented workers who sacrificed their health for the city. Paloma was in the same situation as thousands of other immigrant workers where their undocumented status forced her to take on this dangerous job. The sacrifice she made for the city has now left her so ill that she is no longer able to work. And with no support from the government, her life has been put on a halt. What makes her situation worse is that Paloma's fear of ICE catching her also prevents her from seeking proper help from hospitals. By including Paloma's story of struggle and endless fear, Vila Vicencio continues to discuss the crippling aftermath of the selfless work of undocumented workers. Moving on, the Latinx community was not just affected physically by life-threatening diseases, but their mental health also deteriorated. Workers like Milton contemplated ending their lives due to severe PTSD. Vila Vicencio elaborates by saying, quote, there's Psychological symptoms are triggered by the smell of barbecue, by darkness, by any coverage of news of natural disasters, end quote. Not only that, but typical cultural stigmatization surrounding mental health and well-being makes seeking help only that much harder for the surviving undocumented ground zero workers. Vila Vicencio reflects that in her community, quote, there is an ingrained idea that if you're sick, it is a weakness, a symptom of our internalized bootstraps mythology, end quote. This refers to an independence-driven cultural belief that exists in many Latinx communities. The undocumented, as well as immigrant workers of Ground Zero, refuse to seek help for their mental health for possibly one of many reasons. It could be that they were afraid of Isaac Paloma in terms of seeking professionals, or that they were afraid to be seen as weak, or they were just ashamed of the situation that they were in. In any case, Vila Vicencio tells the workers that they should not have to pretend with her, which only reflects the many ways that the city has failed them. This mistreatment and the city foregoing their responsibilities to these workers brings Villa Vicencio to reflect on the story of Milton's dearest friend, Rafael Hernandez. When Rafael heard of the tragic incident, he rushed to help. Rafael was a firefighter in Mexico, so when he showed the first responders his badge, they asked no questions and suited him up. Among his many great sacrifices for the victims of the crash, the most notable is of a pregnant woman whom he carried down 28 flights of stairs. After this, Rafael was at ground zero for months, and because of his undying dedication to helping, he had caused significant damage to his lungs. However, the city was less than grateful for his immense service. When Rafael passed from complications of his time, at ground zero, he was wrongly declared as having died of alcoholism and obesity. To add to the disrespect, he was introduced on TV as Juan Hernandez, a stereotypical Mexican name. The author once again shows how the city openly accepted Rafael's help with the lack of respect for his Latinx community and with no accolades for his contribution. These experiences and stories shaped Villa Vicencio's perspective of the city as an exploiter of her community service. 
Carla Cornejo Villavicencio's contempt with the way that New York City treated and continues to treat her community is apparent when she writes, quote, no one will ever know you died, no one will ever know you lived, end quote. She's blunt with her words as she reflects on the countless number of undocumented workers who will continue to remain unknown despite their service, their effort, and their sacrifice. As a member of the Latinx community, I relate to this perspective on the city. I have oftentimes felt that my community is not credited for the contributions that we have made for the city, which feels like a never-ending cycle of disrespect. This work highlights the stories of those who have been overlooked in the conversation of 9-11, and it brings awareness and a new image towards the large undocumented population of New York. Although I personally was not aware of the overall presence of undocument, undocumented immigrant workers, as well as the mistreatment of them, this essay has opened up my eyes to the horrific aftermath of 9-11 on the Latinx community. I related personally to Villa Vicencio's story of her father, as my own father had left the country after 9-11 to avoid the pre prejudice and discrimination against Muslims. My father recounted feeling the same sense of helplessness and despair. Overall, the essay provides introspection on the Latinx community, which is important and should be included in the discussion of 9-11. Villa Vicencio's views on the city as an abuser of her community and its abandonment of them after their service is an important part of the history of New York City and should not be overlooked. Thank you. Thanks again to our students from both this week's and last week's episodes for sharing their work and contributing to these special episodes. As I mentioned in the previous episode, Rojo and I will be back with fresh episodes beginning in September. This season will be prioritizing queer Latinidades. In the meantime, let us know what you think. You can share your thoughts with us by reaching out to us on social media or by email. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at LatinxVisions, and our email address is latinxvisions at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends, family, professors, fellow students, and if you have a moment, we would love it if you could leave a five-star review on both Apple and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. Hasta la próxima. Hasta la próxima.